0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash
1: loss. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's special guest is a longevity expert and researcher, Chris Mirabil. Welcome to the show, man. <laughs> Thank you. It's nice to be here. Awesome. Chris, maybe do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about maybe your journey and how you became so fascinated with the area of longevity. Sure, sure. So it's a long story,
0: I'll try to keep it brief. So I became interested in health when I was 12 years old. I picked up an issue of Men's Health Magazine and I was inspired by it and wanted to be as healthy as I could be. So I started exercising and eating what I thought at the time was a healthy diet, which was the low fat, high protein, moderate carb diet only to find that that maybe isn't the most healthy diet nowadays but i followed that religiously i exercised every day and then i was stopped suddenly when i woke up from a seizure in new york city one day from a, a school trip and it turned out that i had a brain tumor and something i never would have expected considering how much i was focusing on my health compared to my classmates and I was stopped in my tracks and it really caused me to ask a lot of existential questions and it really transformed my life in many ways. Um, I'd say in a good way. I think, ironically, it was a, a blessing to have that experience. With that said, it also changed my perspective on health. So, whereas I would say prior to that event, my interest in health was more superficial. It was, I wanted to look good. I wanted to do well in sports. Now it was, we added a dimension to that. Not that I didn't want to look good anymore. I still did, but- It added the dimension of biology of what can go wrong. How how did I get a brain tumor in the first place was a question on my mind. Was it genetic? Was it environmental? Was it a freak mutation? was, Was there some explanation for this? These were questions going on in my mind. And obviously I never wanted to experience something like that again whether it be a brain tumor or some form of cancer or heart disease or Alzheimer's and the list goes on. So that really made me interested in biology. And over the years, I've really integrated that into my life. So by occupation, I'm an entrepreneur. I've started technology companies, but I've always been a citizen scientist, if you will, and uh, an N equals one experimenter with all different types of diets and supplements and lifestyle routines and exercise routines and setting different goals for myself, like to beat the Guinness Book of World Records for most pull-ups in 60 seconds, for example, was what I I set out to achieve when I was 30 years old or to get to professional level deadlifting when I was 31 or 32 years old. So I I achieved 300% body weight deadlift. Um, And most recently, it has been to reverse my biological age which there are a number of different tests you can run to measure your biological age and uh, happy to tell you about that as well if you care to go into that
1: for sure for sure that's incredible stuff chris i'd love to dive into that the biological age maybe explain to my listeners the difference between maybe you know your chronological age versus your biological age Sure,
0: sure. Happy to. So chronological age, everyone's familiar with. That's how many times the earth has revolved around the sun since you've been born and everyone has their birthday and that's their chronological age. But what not everyone's aware of is their biological age. And that is how old you are actually from a biological perspective. So you might be 30 years old chronologically, but you lived a very unhealthy life. You smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. And biologically, your body is exhibiting the biology of that of a 35-year-old or 36-year-old. On the other hand, you may have lived a very healthy life, and you may be biologically 28 years old. Essentially, what these different ages equate to is your mortality risk, right? So the older you are, the more likely it is that there will be something that occurs that causes you to pass away. As you know, when you're 80 years old, your chances of passing away is far higher than when you're 30 years old. So every year biologically that you're older, it's more likely that you will have a chronic illness that you might pass away. And also just in terms of how our biology functions, the older you are, the less efficient it is and the less well we feel compared to when we were younger.
1: Hmm. And so what about as far as, I'd imagine that's obviously an area you've been trying to improve is that biological age. Maybe do you want to, Share with my listeners, like the range of interventions that you applied to yourself or some of the experiments you ran on yourself to, to achieve a lower biological age. Sure. So there's so many different things. I'd
0: say some of the more powerful things. One is extended fasting. So an extended water fast is a really powerful way to try to slow down the aging process and to engage different biological pathways like autophagy and apoptosis, to dial down the mTOR and to dial up things like AMP kinase. And so all of these things can have a favorable impact on your biological age potentially. I also do intermittent fasting. So every day I I eat within a, a narrow eating window, not super narrow. I mean, by some people's standards, when they eat only one meal a day, that's more aggressive than I am, but I try to keep it to eight hours a day. So 12 noon to 8 PM is my eating window. And the rest of the day I'm fasting. I tend to be low carb during work hours, But I actually spent a period of a few years experimenting with a ketogenic diet. This was maybe five or six years ago. And I did a lot of blood tests and a lot of tracking. And I was also using a continuous blood glucose monitor and so on. What I found was that the keto diet, first of all, was not as favorable as I had hoped it would be. I did feel great in terms of like my focus, for example, with work. But I did find that it led to I would say excess levels of stress hormones, things like cortisol. And that's probably part of the reason why I was so focused is because of the stress hormones like norepinephrine and cortisol. So I was really alert, but it wasn't great for me. It wasn't conducive to like really good night's sleep. And I started to feel a little bit fatigued from it over the long term. And my blood lab numbers, I found that my cholesterol numbers went up significantly higher. For example, they were around 250. Now, my HDL was pretty good, so my HDL to LDL ratio was nice. But nonetheless, my LDL was higher than I would like it to be. As soon as I added more carbs back in or I avoided saturated fats, then my cholesterol levels went down. So I found that having more of a Mediterranean-style diet More specifically, I follow the Novos Longevity Diet, which you can find on the website, novoslabs.com slash diet. It's similar to Mediterranean, but with a few tweaks focused on longevity. That has worked best for me. And so staying on the lower end of the carbs during the day while I'm working, while still being within that diet, and then adding more of the carbs towards the end of the day has really helped me with the sleep aspect of it, and then waking up feeling refreshed while keeping the saturated fat low and my triglycerides and cholesterol levels low as well.
1: Mm, awesome. Yeah. Let's dive into that modified Mediterranean diet, the, the Nova Slabs diet. I'd love to learn more about the rationale behind that and also like some of the key pathways you're trying to target with some of the foods you're incorporating into that diet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the diet was formulated largely by my co-founder of Novos, Dr. Chris Verberg, who I believe you've met. And so it predominantly consists of vegetables, healthy fats like olive oil and omega-3 fatty acids, ideally from fish, but also from perhaps algae or flaxseed or chia seeds and so on. A moderate amount of fruits so ideally these are lower sugar or lower glycemic index fruits so not necessarily the mangoes but the berries for example seeds and nuts though i personally avoid nuts because it took me years to figure this out but i have a sensitivity to nuts and whenever i eat them it makes me feel very tired so a few hours later i feel fatigued and i need to take a nap and it took me a long time to figure this out but i avoid the nuts and practically eliminated that issue dark chocolates with very low sugar things like that what's different from mediterranean diet one of the things that's different is a reduction in the wheat products right the grains so mediterranean diet might have a modest amount of pasta or rice or starches from tubers like potatoes and those Typically, everyone's different, but typically really spike blood glucose levels, and they tend to be very low on, on nutrients. So our philosophy is to add more nutritive ingredients like more beans, mushrooms, more vegetables, and so on to avoid the blood glucose spike while also then getting in additional nutrients.
1: Yep. You know, I'd love to dive into is um, like the discovery process. I know you just said before, and I'm curious to learn more about this. When you said it took a long time for you to figure out that you were sensitive to nuts. And this is something that, again, like I really want to highlight to my listeners is like building up that level of self-awareness, like foods that come across as, you know, seemingly healthy, for example, which nuts are completely healthy. You know, some people can have an adverse reaction to So like maybe what sort of... Advice can you give my listeners there in terms of experimentation and awareness? You know, you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way.
0: Unfortunately, I did it the hard way, which was basically trying to observe patterns in my life and seeing like, oh, I'm feeling really tired every day. What could be causing it? And then I have to like eliminate one thing after the other. That's the hard way. The easy way is to go with an elimination diet where you start with a very simple diet that does not contain ingredients that tend to provoke immune reactions, so eliminating shellfish and eggs and nuts and so on. And also try to simplify your supplementation routine and your sleep and try to eliminate as many potentially confounding factors as possible. So to have a very basic, simple routine and to follow that for a few weeks, at least two weeks. And then slowly introduce each item. So for example, add eggs in and go a week with those eggs and keep a close eye on how you're feeling. Maybe even keep a notebook. If there's any sort of objective measures that you can look at, that would also be helpful for these different types of foods. Like how long are you sleeping for? I use the Aura Ring. There's other sleep trackers. Maybe you're sleeping for longer during those periods and you don't know it. And maybe maybe that's a good thing or maybe it's a bad thing. It depends on where you are in your sleep hygiene and and your sleep effectiveness. But track it, and don't rush it. Because when you rush it, like I was, (laughs) you might end up missing something, and you might not really attribute it to that specific ingredient. You know, I came to this realization maybe six, seven years ago, and then I got curious, maybe a month ago, is this still the case? Like, maybe it was a microbiome issue, maybe I had a leaky gut, maybe there's a reason why they were causing this reaction. There's so many nice products that contain nuts that I wanted to have that I saw at Whole Foods. So it's like, let me just do this experiment. So I had a meal replacement bar that contained some almonds in it. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. This is no big deal. But then fast forward, like four or five days into it, I suddenly had to take a nap in the middle of the afternoon for the first time in like two years. And I thought it didn't make the connection at first, but then by the second time that that happened i said oh obviously it's the nuts the nuts are doing it to me again so um it's all about these experiments and the self-observation and just being meticulous with it and and giving it enough time like it took me five days or so to realize it the second time around and i was looking for it so don't rush it and be careful with it
1: yeah i think it's imperative that people really pay attention to that particularly for those in the biohacking space which a lot of my audience is Is in that space. We get excited and we want to like throw so many things at our body at once, try so many different things at once, but really, like, it can make things a bit of a mess. And before you know it, you're attributing a negative effect to something that's actually positive because you're just mixing too many variables. I think that's a really important point for my listeners. But, Chris, I'd love to go back to like the biological age. And so, let's dive into some of the methods used to assess one's biological age? Sure.
0: So there are multiple different approaches to try to measure a biological age. The most promising ones that scientists have so far devised are the epigenetic biological age clocks. There's scientists like Dr. Steve Horvath, who is very famous for his work on these types of clocks. Other scientists like Dr. Levine and Dr. Hannum and so on are recognized names in the scientific literature for these types of clocks. Not all clocks are created equal. Some clocks are more accurate than others. Some clocks look at different things than others. And we can talk a little bit about that in a moment. Ultimately, the way that an epigenetic clock works is that it's looking at your epigenome. So for those who aren't familiar, you've got your genome, which is like the piano keys on the piano. And everyone's familiar with genetics at this point, but the epigenome is essentially which of those keys are being played. So it's more like the piano player, who is either making beautiful Tchaikovsky music or is sounding like a kid, you know, crashing down on the keys, right? And ideally you sound more like Tchaikovsky and you sound less like the kid. But as you get older, that beautiful symphony starts to sound more and more disorderly or chaotic and disarray. And that's because as you age, certain genes that should be turned on are turned off, and certain genes that should be turned off are turned on. So for example, a gene that should be turned on that maybe is anti-inflammatory and really keeps the body in a state of homeostasis, that's accidentally turned off. And um, similar things can happen in the opposite direction. And so there are patterns to this. And as you get older, scientists are able to make these correlations and able to identify essentially how old you are based on which genes, specific genes, not all of your genes, but specific genes, which ones are turned on and which ones are turned off. And they identify these patterns. So some of these tests, as I mentioned, are more accurate than others. And some of the tests look at rather than what your biological age is, they look at your pace of aging. So in fact, one of the most accurate tests out there is a pace of aging clock as opposed to the actual age. So it tells you How quickly are you aging? So for every one year, for example, are you aging one year? That's what the average person would be doing. Or are you aging 1.2 years every year or 0.8 years every year? When you consider these two different types of clocks, one being your biological age versus your pace of aging, your pace of aging is something that you can make an impact on in the shorter term. In other words, maybe in three or six or 12 months, you can integrate an intervention into your life, and then start to see the direction that it starts to go. Whereas with the age clocks, the standard age clocks, it's much harder to see that because you've got decades of accumulated life experiences, environmental experiences that have led to whatever your biological age is. And for you to then be able to move that becomes more difficult. Not to say that you can't. There are studies that show, as well as anecdotes, where people have been able to do it. But it will move less readily compared to the pace of aging clock.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So what about the other method? Is it DNA methylation?
0: So DNA methylation is literally the epigenetic clock. So your epigenome, your genes can be methylated or unmethylated, and that is essentially turning a gene on or off, and that is epigenetic. So yes, they're used kind of synonymously, the methylation clocks or epigenetic
1: clocks. Oh, sure. So I guess from like an intervention perspective, let's say my listeners, uh, you know, maybe wanting to know about some of the most potent anti-aging modalities or therapies you know, there's so many different things you can look into stem cell therapy fasting specific diets what would you say right now based on the evidence as the strongest or the most robust research for extending lifespan
0: Good question. So I'll give a few answers to that. So if you're an adventurous one and you want to use a prescription drug, the most evidence is behind the drug called rapamycin. So rapamycin is actually associated with the term mTOR, which I mentioned earlier, and I know um, guests of yours have mentioned it before, but mTOR stands for mechanistic target of rapamycin. It's a growth pathway when it's turned on in our bodies, cells are growing, organs are growing. So if you exercise and lift weights and then have whey protein, for example, you're activating mTOR in that process. But overactivation of that can actually accelerate aging and reducing the activation of it will slow down aging. And in our constantly fed state that the world has evolved to at this point, at least higher income countries, we're chronically activating mTOR and that's actually negative for our bodies. So rapamycin is a drug that has been found that when ingested, it reduces mTOR. Now there's two complexes of mTOR, mTOR-1 and mTOR-2. The typical reason for taking rapamycin is to inhibit both of those complexes for the sake of an organ transplant. So if you're receiving a transplant of a kidney, for example, you wanna turn off both of those complexes because it will also turn off your immune system in the process you want your immune system to turn off because you don't want to reject that organ right so that is the traditional use of rapamycin it will literally turn off your immune system but what's been found is that if you take a low dose of it chronically or if you take a more commonly in longevity research a pulsed dose where people will take it maybe once a week or once every other week in a slightly larger dose, they can actually reduce the mTOR activation while not turning off their immune system. And in fact, research has found that it can actually even strengthen the immune system in the process. Now, this is not something that I'm recommending, like just Full disclosure, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not recommending this. This is like very experimental, but there are people, there are scientists in the longevity field who have admitted to experimenting with this. That would be the most aggressive way forward. It's also, I would say, the most most risky way forward. Some people would say it's not risky and and they encourage it, but I would say, generally speaking, most people would consider it to be on the higher end of the spectrum of, of risk. On the lower end of the spectrum of risk, in full disclosure, this is my company, but I really do believe in what we're doing. I founded the company Novos Labs. And we formulated a couple of products, but the one that we're most proud of is called Novos Core. And we formulated this, it's the very first product ever to be created that addresses all of the mechanisms of aging simultaneously. So one thing we didn't talk about is why do we get older in the first place? and scientists have identified what's known as these mechanisms of aging. There was a seminal paper published in a prestigious journal called Cell. It was a meta-analysis where they looked at hundreds of studies that were investigating aging, and they were able to categorize these into nine different categories. Since then, more research has been done, and so uh, we as a company added a 10th mechanism that scientists also agree with. And um, to that point, we have world-renowned scientists on our advisory board from Harvard, MIT, and the Salk Institute, including the guy who invented gene, gene sequencing. So we're working with some really you know, top quality scientists in our formulations and our approach. And so those mechanisms, I'll just briefly mention them, and if you care to go into any of them, I'm happy to. But there are mitochondrial dysfunction, cellular senescence, loss of proteostasis, altered intercellular communication, genomic instability, epigenetic alterations, telomere shortening, deregulated nutrient sensing, stem cell exhaustion, and the 10th one uh, is cross-linking. So cross-linking is oftentimes associated with glycation and high sugar levels. It could lead to things like skin wrinkling and stiffening of
1: arteries and blood vessels and so on. Fascinating. I think we briefly looked at some of those mechanisms Of aging. I know those 10 that you mentioned there. One that I think is I'm excited to see more research on is like the link between, you know, the microbiome and how that's affecting maybe mTOR, AMPK, things like that. Because as you were sort of discussing rapamycin, which I'm sure quite a lot of my listeners would know about rapamycin, something that I came across in the early days, looking at longevity drugs and then metformin was next. But with rapamycin, for example. If it is so powerfully inhibiting both mTOR, you know, the two types of mTOR that you mentioned, would that have consequences in terms of you know building muscle and muscle growth? Potentially.
0: Now, there was a study, and I can't recall it off the top of my head, where it was it was done in mice, so it's not necessarily transferable to humans, but they did administer rapamycin to mice. And they found that although the mTOR wasn't being activated, the mice who were being stressed in the form of exercise compared to the control, I believe had more or less the same amount of muscle growth. And and I'd have to to find that that exact study to, to reference. But with that said, theoretically, yes, it is possible that it can reduce muscle growth. We see it with metformin, which you also just mentioned. So metformin, although a different drug and it acts through different mechanisms, it's been found to, especially when taken in close proximity to exercise, reduce the uh, the efficacy of that exercise. So reduce the ergogenic effects of that exercise, right? And so there are things you can do about that. So for example, with metformin, since it has a, a shorter half-life than rapamycin, you can take that metformin far away from your exercise. So maybe you work out in the morning, and then you don't have any metformin until you have carbs in the evening at dinner at you know, 6, 7, 8 p.m. So that would at least reduce, there's not a scientific study that has investigated this, but it's fair to assume that it would reduce the negative impact, right? Whereas rapamycin, the issue with it is it has an extremely long half-life. It's, I believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of 48 hours. I don't recall off the top of my head, but it's, it's a long half-life. It might even be 72 hours. So when you take it, especially if you're taking a pulsed large dose, that can last for a significant amount of time. So, and if you're taking it every week, that would mean if you're doing like strenuous exercise, you would want to time that for the end of the week, or maybe consider doing it once every two or three weeks. So it depends on how physically active you are, but it is a consideration that people should make.
1: Yeah, for sure. What about as far as one of the most potent stimulators of aging would be like insufficient sleep or poor quality sleep. I'd love to learn about maybe some of your experiments over the years, like what have you found to be like the most potent for improving sleep quality? Uh, Great question.
0: So I've experimented a lot with sleeping because I did have sleep issues and some of those sleep issues early on were actually arising from my experimentation with the keto diet, like I mentioned, where I was finding myself excreting too many stress hormones, particularly cortisol, presumably to kick off a process called gluconeogenesis, where my blood doesn't have enough glucose for the sake of my brain, and so my liver needs to create it, and it does so using cortisol, which then woke me up every night at like 3 or 4 a.m., and then I had trouble falling back asleep. I corrected that, but then I also found oftentimes that I still wasn't sleeping well enough, and I found that that was because, you know, I'm that personality that's always trying to outdo myself in a sense, always trying to achieve goals and so on, which I'm sure most biohackers are like me. And... I found myself not eating enough calories to account for how much I was burning. So I would exercise a lot and I would want to be lean, but I was hypocaloric. And being hypocaloric also disrupted my sleep. So I needed to make a point to always be at least eucaloric, like equal to how many calories I was burning. If I'm off by a couple hundred calories here and there, that's fine. And I don't measure it, I'm not meticulous about it, but I I can feel like, am I feeling hungry? 2 hours before bedtime if so have have some more food before I'm getting ready for bed. So that was another big one. There are certain supplements that help. Everyone knows about magnesium. We have a lot of that in Novo's Core for actually the malate form specifically for malate more so than for the magnesium when it comes to longevity, but that's a great supplement. I found that valerian extract is a great a great ingredient for improving sleep. Not necessarily to take every day, but for those days that you expect you're going to need some help sleeping. And I've actually, believe it or not, found one of the best sleep hacks ever for me personally, was a like $2 intervention is earplugs. So uh, believe it or not, most people don't know how to put earplugs into their ears. Like whenever I see my friends put earplugs in, they just like squish it and then shove it into their ear. And they say these don't, don't these things don't really work. If you do it the right way, you're like literally lifting your ear up, and you're you know making it very thin, almost like a golf tee, and then you're putting it in gently as deep as you can, and you let it expand. And when it expands, it completely shuts out the noise. And I used to live in Manhattan, and you know there's noisy streets there, and even now living in Florida, there's noise coming from you know other people in my home or the dog. And having no noise coming in or limited noise coming in really, really helps me sleep because whether you know it or not, the noises in your environment are waking you. They're causing micro arousals. If you were to get a sleep study done, they would show that you are waking up and that disruption in your sleep is leading to less efficient sleep. So any way that I can try to tune out the outside world, with that, I also wear a sleep mask really helps me to improve the efficiency and the effectiveness of my sleep.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, Chris, because it's probably the area that I think a lot of people neglect. I mean, we've had quite a lot of guests and even myself talk about the benefits of like mouth taping to promote, Mm. you know, nasal breathing, and then also wearing an eye mask, which I'm a huge believer of as well, wearing blue blockers before bed. But again, like I think blocking out noise, like you said, you know, micro amounts of noise can cause, these mini awakenings during your sleep. And again, not many people would be aware of that. So I think that's a really crucial point. Something else I'd love to explore with you, Chris, I guess is actually, I know you mentioned a while back, you actually played around with a a blood glucose, continuous glucose monitor. I'd love to explore more around that because again, that's, I personally think that a CGM device is going to be extremely beneficial for a wide variety of people hopefully in the next year or so, it's becoming more widely available. What did you learn through wearing one of those? Yeah, let's sort of share your experience using a CGM device.
0: Sure. So part of the reason why I experimented with the CGM was because I was experimenting with the the traditional finger prick devices uh, that diabetics typically use and I found that I had higher fasting blood glucose than I would have expected and this was initially when I was on the ketogenic diet and it struck me as very odd and I was thinking that maybe this is as a result of the ketogenic diet maybe too many stress hormones and it's keeping my blood sugar elevated and so on I then added carbs in and the fasting blood glucose was identical it didn't decline. We're talking slightly above 100 milligrams per deciliter. I then got a CGM to try to better understand how my blood sugar fluctuates based on fasting or different food schedules and so on. And admittedly, I don't have all of the answers still. It's still an ongoing experiment. My blood sugar is still slightly higher than you would expect. And I say higher than I would expect because practically all other measures that I've done have come out favorably for me. So I didn't mention when we're talking about the, the biological age results, for example, the laboratory that did the test for me and ran multiple different algorithms, multiple clocks on me um, said that I had perhaps the best results they've ever seen. So at 37 years old, I was 11 years chronologically younger based on their most standard test, the Dunedin-POAM test, that's the pace of aging test. It's um, considered the most accurate by many people in the field. It was created by Duke and Columbia University. That has me aging at seven and a half years for every 10 years, for every decade. So basically 75% every year is what I'm aging. Telomere length is that of a a 24-year-old. My uh, uh, extrinsic epigenetic age, which is my immune system age, Uh, based on the Hannum EEAA clock, that's 19 and a half years old. So between that, my blood test results, my body fat percentage, my visceral fat percentage, like all of these things are not characteristic of a diabetic whatsoever. But yet my blood sugar is slightly above where it should be. Ideally, it's below 100 and ideally even lower than 90. So- I've experimented with periods of prolonged fasting. I'm able to get my blood sugar down into you know, the 80s, sometimes upper 70s when I do prolonged fasting. When I eat certain types of foods, I can see my blood sugar spike. Like there are certain types of fruits, for example, that I can see blood sugar go up to like 170. But what I will say is that fortunately, I, I do have a very responsive glucose response curve, right? So in other words, am I insulin sensitive? Yes. My glucose might spike, but when you look at the one hour postprandial and the two hour postprandial, they are in very healthy ranges. So it seems like I'm insulin sensitive. When we've measured with blood tests, how much insulin I produce, like my fasting insulin levels and so on, very, very low. But for some reason, there is that pesky fasting blood glucose that's a little bit high. So These are some of the things you can learn from the continuous blood glucose monitor. In my case, it's a little bit of of an exception compared to most people. But in general, to be able to see how different foods and how different eating windows and how different sleep routines can influence your blood glucose levels, that's very important, especially for the topic of longevity where I mentioned before, for example, glycation, the higher your blood glucose levels, the more glycation takes place. You literally see it in one of the blood markers for your blood glucose, which is your HbA1c, that is your glycated hemoglobin. That is literally how much glycation is taking place on your red blood cells. So just imagine that is also happening to other proteins throughout your body, which the more that happens, the quicker those tissues and by extension organs can break down in, in the sense of becoming stiffer and not functioning the way that they're supposed to. So generally speaking, as long as you're not hypoglycemic, the lower your blood sugar and the less of an extreme increase and the area under the curve, all of those being as low as possible is, is what you're striving for.
1: Yeah, this is really fascinating. I'm really enjoying this because um now I'm starting to link in some of my own experiments that I did wearing a CGM. I want to dive into When you had that spike in glucose, like let's say a certain food you had, it actually spiked your glucose. Did you subjectively feel different during that spike and or did you feel any physiological changes like when it came back down at all? I'd say
0: there is a subtle difference in terms of my energy levels and clarity of thought. So generally speaking, when my blood sugar levels are stable and on the lower end of the spectrum, I do think more clearly my memory is that much sharper. We're not talking about like really significant differences, right? And we're also not talking about blood sugar being in the two, three, 400 range that you can find in diabetics and sometimes much higher than that. But there is a subtle difference. Now, what I'm not precise enough with is how much of that was when the blood sugar was high versus how much of it was when the blood sugar was declining. So in other words, like the insulin being high. And part of the reason for that is that the CGM is about 15 minutes delayed because it's in your interstitial tissue. And it takes longer for the blood sugar to make its way to interstitial tissue. So if I check it right now, I then need to technically recall how was I feeling 15 minutes ago. And that's more accurate. And I haven't been particularly careful with that. So I'm not sure if it's about the peak or if it's the come down that is actually leading to that effect.
1: Yeah, interesting. How about you? Yeah, well, with, with my experiments, I mean, um, when I was in Byron Bay, I decided to, I was fasting. The first, my breakthrough meal was going to be pure cane sugar juice, like just it was a, super high sugar juice. But interestingly- I was thinking that it might like cause like a deterioration in cognition or maybe like brain fog or something. But literally what happened, Chris, was like my blood sugar spiked super high. It was like, I think it was like 185. And it went up, obviously, because it's a liquid, liquids get absorbed rapidly. And so like it peaked at like 180. But then interestingly, like it shot back down, but it, it shot back down and it literally went back down to exactly like where it was before. And so like I never really felt any like drop off in cognition or any changes to my energy. However, what I did notice was like many, many hours later, like three, four, five, six hours later, I was getting intense sugar cravings. So that totally, like for me, that totally makes sense. It's probably manipulating the microbiome, feeding some pathogenic bacteria and they're triggering, like they want me to keep going with the sugar or maybe that spike in blood sugar was actually manipulating ghrelin or leptin. And later on, that was how it played out. But yeah, I mean, just wearing a CGM device was so fascinating just to play around with different experiments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's also specific cells, I believe that can sense the sugar. So there was an experiment where they blocked the sweet taste receptors in people's mouths so you couldn't actually taste the sweetness and they were able to find that the sugar was triggering these specific cells in the gut that then led to future cravings and it wasn't specific to the microbiome it was actually these cell structures so it's probably probably that as well it's part of the reason why when you have a lot of sugar in your diet it's that much harder to kick the habit it's like everything it's the psychology of the taste and then these cell structures and then the microbiome everything is conspiring against your goals at that case
1: yeah for sure well speaking of sugars in the last week or so i don't know how this flew under my radar but i was came across the sugar trehalose t-r-e-h-a-l-o-s-e have you personally experimented with that or done any research on that particular sugar
0: yeah. I actually use it every day in my personal uh, concoction that I make for a protein shake. So yeah, there's some research that it can have some neuroprotective, neurocognitive benefits to it. So otherwise I avoid sugar, but I take a five gram scoop of that and add it to my post-workout protein shake.
1: That's really cool. Cause um, yeah, when I was looking into the research, I was like, damn, this is a sugar that activates autophagy. It's neuroprotective. It's like it just had all these amazing benefits, and I was like, "Yeah," so I ordered some myself, and only just started about a week ago, and so far, so good. Like I've noticed much better mental clarity. I actually noticed nootropic effects from a sugar. Like I've had experience. Mm. I've had experience with D ribose as a like energy booster, yep. and that had good effects. But I think what prompted me with the trehalose was the ability for it to. I remember seeing a study where they added it to a high carb meal and by adding it to a high carb meal, it even lowered postprandial glucose by like 30% or something crazy. Interesting, I haven't seen that study, but I do know in terms of sweeteners,
0: allulose can have a similar effect as well in Mm. terms of reducing postprandial glucose.
1: What about as far as Chris, like when you saw your fasting glucose was slightly high, despite all these other variables factors being perfect, really. Did you personally experiment with powerful glucose lowering agents like metformin, semaglutide, things like that? I haven't yet. Well,
0: the only one I'm actually currently experimenting with is, I'm going to destroy the pronunciation of this word, but it's um, Gymnestra Silvestra. Gymnema Silvestra. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that in chromium, and I found that both of those seem to be having a positive effect. I've also incorporated some resistant starch into my diet as well. and so the three of those things combined seem to be bringing my postprandials down lower. My waking fasting blood glucose is still you know where it was, still above a hundred. Part of that could be you know the dawn phenomena, you know, large amounts of cortisol release in the morning help you wake up and, I find that until I eat my first meal, it tends to stay up high. And then after I eat my first meal, it goes lower than my waking fast blood glucose. So that can partially be explained by maybe there is just a little bit too much stress and cortisol and then adding the food can help to reduce it. But those other substances have helped. I considered also metformin to give it a try just to see what it does. But I'd rather start with the weaker, simpler, more nutritive types of substances before trying the prescription.
1: Yeah, of course. Interesting. I'd be curious to see maybe in the future, if if you bring in brewer's yeast, like, um, Mm. I don't know, five to 10 grams of brewer's yeast. I've seen some pretty good data on that as far as an intervention for blood sugar, but let's go back to Novus. I want to go back to the formula that you put together, obviously, because that's an anti-aging blend. Maybe some of the ingredients talk about the objective of the formula. Like what is it trying to achieve? And how is it trying to do that?
0: Yeah, so uh, kind of picking up from where I left off before. So I mentioned those 10 mechanisms of aging. And so we're the first formula that was specifically created to address all 10 of those simultaneously. So there are biotech companies, for example, with tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in funding, sometimes billions of dollars in funding, trying to address, say, one of these mechanisms at a time, like the epigenome. But our philosophy, which is shared with many of our scientific advisors and even non-scientific advisors who we still chat with, is that you're only going to make a significant impact on the aging process if you address multiple or ideally even all of these mechanisms simultaneously. It's like, take the analogy of... Our bodies being like an old car that's been sitting in the driveway for years and years and years, and there's no more air in the tires, and there's a lot of rust and the muffler's falling off. Well, you could fill the tires with air, but that's not going to make the car run like new anymore. You still need to clean off the rust, and you still need to reattach the muffler, so on and so forth. So that's why we're addressing all 10 simultaneously, and we're the first, and as far as I know, the only ones doing this. So we do this with 12 ingredients in our foundational formula, Novos Core. And then we also sell Novos Boost, which is like a booster to core, which is based on the popular ingredient nicotinamide mononucleotide or NMN to increase NAD levels. But the ingredients in Novos Core are calcium form of alpha-ketoglutarate, glycine, glucosamine sulfate form specifically, terastilbene, which is a better alternative to resveratrol, fisetin, microdose of lithium, ginger extract, malate, which comes from magnesium malate, and magnesium also offers benefits, but we intentionally included malate, hyaluronic acid, and not simply for the hyaluronic acid in the traditional sense of improving skin health, but actually for what's called acetyl glucosamine, which is a component of hyaluronic acid which has been shown to extend lifespan in multiple animal species. Theanine or L-theanine, rhodiola, vitamin C, specifically because of the way that it can impact the epigenome, but also because of the way that it can amplify the effects of calcium alpha-ketoglutarate. And then I mentioned NMN is in Novos Boost. And what I didn't mention before though, is that in addition to addressing all of these mechanisms simultaneously, We also intentionally included some ingredients that show that they can slow down aging, but also have short-term benefits in the process. And those short-term benefits that a majority of our customers feel include everything from improved mood, so a reduction in anxiety or improved calmness, improved skin health, so, we did a, a small study where we use a professional device called an indentometer, and we found that we increased people's skin firmness or elasticity by a minimum of 12%, an average of 22%, and a maximum of 40%. This was in people in their 60s. And then the other benefit was improved energy, kind of as a side effect
1: of improved sleep. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. As you're reeling off some of those ingredients, it's funny because I literally like I've been filming a lot of videos lately for YouTube and a lot of those ingredients that you mentioned, I've been so excited to share them to my listeners. Mm-hmm. There has still been a, a love of had some experience with that. The glucosamine was really interesting because did you see that? There's a fairly recent study on glucosamine sulfate and it was a huge study. They used like I think it was close to a hundred thousand participants. And that was really promising. It was associated with longer lifespan is pretty interesting. Exactly.
0: I'm not sure if you're referring to the same study, but there was one in the United Kingdom where it was a retrospective analysis of people who took supplements in their lives and their like all-cause mortality, and they were able to slice and dice all of the data, and they found that of all of the supplements, the most significant by far was the glucosamine sulfate form, and it led to longer lives and a reduction in heart-related fatal events. And we also see it in animal studies where it is a controlled study. It extends lifespan in multiple animal studies. It targets inflammation at a cellular level. So it can help the body to to adapt to oxidative stress. And it also supports
1: autophagy, which we mentioned earlier. Interesting. So I'd imagine like a comprehensive formula that you've just mentioned there, the Novos formula itself, a lot of these ingredients would then be targeting like I can't imagine the number of different pathways that, because not just like, for example, one of these ingredients, let's say, for example, I don't know, I'll talk about maybe like terostilbene. bean I mean, it improves aging by activating maybe like how many of the 10 pathways, maybe like five or six, for example. And then you've got other ingredients in there that also then like target maybe three of the 10 and then another ingredient that target maybe like five. So I'd imagine, I mean, like this, particular formula, I'd love to, I'm hoping that you guys have plans to do like clinical, like actual clinical trials, like with participants, like human studies.
0: Yes, so we've done some studies so far on in vitro level, and I can tell you a little bit about this. We haven't published the data yet, but I can share it with you. So, and then we are also doing in vivo clinical trial as well, but that's much more time intensive and it will be a while before we have results for that. The in vitro study results, We're all using human cells. We've done two so far, and both of them have favorable results. So the first one was a senescent cell study, and we wanted to see what effect can Novos have on senescent cells, human senescent cells. And what we found is that Novos has a senostatic effect on senescent cells. So what does that mean? A lot of people are familiar with the term senolytics. Senolytics are intended to destroy senescent cells, as you can sense from the word lysis, right? Like cut it and destroy it. The issue with senolytics is that they are oftentimes causing damage peripheral damage to nearby tissues especially epithelial tissues and those tissues can also include stem cells so one of the reasons we didn't include quercetin for example and we chose fisetin it was at the advice of one of our scientific advisors who is a world-renowned expert at the salt institute for polyphenols and studies literally quercetin and fisetin We decided to go with the fisetin because it did not have these types of effects on healthy tissue, whereas quercetin did. And if you consider like one of the studies that a lot of longevity advocates quote with the desatinib, which is a chemotherapeutic drug combined with quercetin, and a lot of people are doing experiments with it, I personally wouldn't touch it because of my concern that it's causing damage to stem cells and other healthy tissue. Whereas the fisetin is is a little bit more gentle in that sense but also more targeted and in addition to that it has some neuroprotective effects as well some nootropic types of effects as well so getting back to the study what we found was it was senostatic and that means that rather than destroying the senescent cells we stop them from proliferating which is one of the biggest problems with senescent cells is they cause other nearby tissues to become senescent because of inflammatory molecules that they release And we shrunk the size of those senescent cells, I believe by about 55%. So they were not only smaller, they weren't causing nearby cells to become senescent. So as far as we're concerned, that is the best thing that we can do right now to minimize the unintended consequences of damaging nearby cells and stem cells, while also keeping the senescent cells at bay. The second study we did was a DNA damage study And this was the way we set up the study, and this was with a a laboratory that specializes in longevity interventions, and they work typically with pharma companies. Before we ran the study, they warned us, they said, we've done $7 million worth of studies looking into what you wanna look into with natural substances and prescription substances, and we didn't get good results. And then when they got the results of our study, they wrote to us and the scientists did, and they said that they literally called their CEO to let them know about the results because they were so excited with what they saw. We reduced the DNA damage from irradiation by about 50%. So we did different concentrations of Novos core and boost together. I didn't mention that with the senescence study it was with core and boost together. And with the different concentrations, we found varying effects, but for the most part, almost all of the concentrations reduced the DNA damage. So there was a saturation from a pretty low dosage and it reduced the
1: damage again by about half
0: with the irradiation that we administered to, to those cells.
1: Wow, it's, um, incredible stuff and hats off to the team. I mean, that's a an incredible finding and I'm, I'm really excited to see what sort of research comes out in terms of, um, you know, some of these in vivo studies and potentially, you know, human studies. So, um, Chris, I'd love to ask you one final question as, as far as like the future of longevity research and what you hope to see in the future. Maybe there's key areas you're really excited to see more of. Like, what really, yeah, what really excites you to see more of in in the whole longevity space? Yeah, you know, I would say
0: that. Our goal as a company is to extend humanity's lifespan. That's our mission behind the company. We want people to be younger for longer. That's kind of the saying that we have across our website. And so what our intention is as a company is is to be the consumer-facing company for longevity because there's a lot happening on the biotech side. And a lot of this is many years away, will be prohibitively expensive for most of us. And so- It'll be a long time before we can really trust it and use it and afford to use it. So what I hope is that we can succeed, and if not us, then someone else, to really make this something that's very accessible to the consumer where they can, first of all, learn about the importance of addressing aging because aging is the number one risk factor for practically all of the chronic illnesses. Going back to the beginning of our conversation about my brain tumor, but cancer, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, sarcopenia, you know, the list goes on. The number one risk factor for all of them is aging. So if you can address the causes of aging, you can delay or prevent these diseases from occurring in the first place. So education is first creating the formulations that can then have a significant impact on these causes of aging and supporting that with research, and then giving people the tools like the measuring sticks. So we're going to release a epigenetic age clock in the coming months where people will be able to test our intervention as well as other lifestyle interventions that they're integrating into their lives to make sure that they're trending in the right direction. I think that's tremendously important. And I think that you know, historically, people have focused on things like their weight as a marker of their health. What we now realize is things like blood glucose and your epigenetic age results are probably more powerful than even the standard blood test that your doctor is prescribing to you when, when you visit every year.
1: Yeah, epic. I mean, um, yeah, you guys are doing a fantastic job. And I'm, you know, really impressed with the formulation, like the vision. Um, and just how robust and thorough you guys are in terms of like the formulations and and building a company it definitely inspires me one day to have my own range and formulations but um, for my listeners I'll make sure to link in those products for those who are potentially interested in purchasing them trying them out you know leveraging the power of some of these supplements I'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes but otherwise Chris thank you so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure having you on.